All right. Um, does everybody have a handout? I believe uh, Larry's got some in the back. We've got another stack up front here. Everybody good? <coughs> so maybe this is the week you've all been waiting for. And the only reason you don't know what I'm talking about is because you haven't looked at the passage yet. Um, this is maybe the hardest passage in the letter. There are others that aren't uh, as easy. Um, but this is up there for sure. So um, with that, let's do, uh, let's do pray. You can open up to your Bibles real quick as I do the same. 1 Timothy 2, verses 8 to 15. It's printed for you on the handout as always. Okay, let's pray together. Father, we, as always, need your grace. As always, we need your spirit to be our teacher, to work with your word, to accomplish your purposes in our lives. We need that in a particular way this morning. I need that in a particular way this morning. Uh, but we thank you, Lord, uh, for your goodness and your kindness to us, and that uh, anytime that your people gather around your word, you intend it for our good and that you, you are at work in the midst of us. And so we pray that you do that this morning, that you would make us more into the image of Jesus, uh, that we would ultimately know him and love him more. Lord, uh, give us a great spirit of humility and charity towards one another. Uh, help us to deal openly and honestly with this passage, uh, but also to not... Um, to not lose sight of uh, the gospel as the core of, of uh, what we are called to believe and rest in. So help us this morning. Uh, we, we need your grace now. We look to you expectantly and pray in the name of Christ. Amen. <clears throat> okay, a uh, quick review. First Timothy is letter written to Paul, sorry, by Paul to Timothy. Uh, the main point is that he's trying to put a stop to this false teaching that is happening in Ephesus. So he's left Timothy behind. He's writing a letter to Timothy about this. We've talked some about these false teachers. There's some kind of Jewish Christian roots that's twisting some view of the law. There's some misunderstanding of the law. There are elements of asceticism, which we'll talk about this morning. Those are uh, ways that you might try and attain spiritual growth through severity to your body in some way. The way it manifests itself in Ephesus is by the um, disparaging of certain foods and thinking that marriage isn't all so spiritual. So that, they talk about that in chapter 4, Paul does. It's going to be relevant today, I think, particularly for uh, our final verse. Uh, ultimately, though, the issue is that it's a denial of the gospel, um, whereas the true gospel results in love, according to chapter 1, verse 5. These false teachers and their false teaching results in something other than love. It's quarreling, it's anger, um, it's uh, vain discussions. So that's a problem, and Paul is writing to confront those things. In conjunction with that, um, he says a lot about the, uh, the order of the household of God. Uh, the offices of the church with this helpful uh, this morning, given that we have ordained two elders already this morning and we'll ordain three more in the next service. Um, what is likely the case is that these false teachers held a prominent place in the church at Ephesus 
And that's why uh, Paul needs to talk some about the offices of the church as well. And so in chapter 3, he speaks of the order of the household of God uh, for that reason. It could have been that these guys were even, um, even elders themselves. That's what one commentator thinks. I don't know for sure. Uh, so th- that's a quick review of where we've been. Um, Keith spoke last week about public prayer um, and the, the call to pray for all people, pray for government authorities, all with, uh, towards the end that the, the mission of God is going to go forth. That's what he's looking at there. So today we're going to turn to uh, verses 8 through 15 of chapter 2. Uh, I will read that for us now. I desire then that in every place that that men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So there you have it. That's what we're going to do today. Just a few small little things to discuss. Yes? This is awkward. I don't know uh, how we proceed from here. That's yeah, that costly attire. That's actually going to become very helpful, seriously, uh, as we talk about this. Um, do what now? Under the influence. Yeah, okay. These are good. This is good. Okay. Um, as you can tell, there's not just one issue in here that kind of makes us squirm a little. There are multiple issues. You got this question of modesty, like, what well, is Paul against braided hair or gold or like nice things? That's why we can't have nice things. Um, is he? Um, well, what's obviously what's the deal with this uh, discussion of women not teaching? Um, how how do we think about that? Um, is Paul saying something uh, about the fall being Eve's fault in thirteen and fourteen? And if we're not already sufficiently confused and frustrated, verse 15 is like a huge curveball, and it's notoriously difficult to interpret. She's going to be saved through childbearing. Um, If she continues, or if they continue in faith and love, there's change in person there from singular to plural. So, rather than just talking about all these issues, let's um, try and dig into them a little bit more. let me start just with this. This might be totally obvious for the sake of discussion, and we probably won't have as much discussion this morning because I'm going to try and dig in on some of this. But why is this passage so hard for us? Let us count the ways. <laughs> well, what, what are, why is this so difficult? Why do I have heartburn in preparing this? Yeah, Jay said we... Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Continue. Yes, okay, great. So, yeah, we live in the 21st century Western culture in a democratic society that uh, really pushes back against any kind of um, 
if, any kind of distinction in role, at least if we're saying that a person is allowed to do this and somebody else is not allowed to do it. Yes. Yeah, Jenny. Yeah. Yes, yeah. I think there's a real danger. Yeah, Jenny said that this verse can be misused both directions. There's, there's the one probably that many, uh, that many in here would think of that, that just want to disregard this passage and say this is bound up in a time and place that is different from where we are now. We have progressed as a society beyond this sort of thing. That's probably what we think of misusing it. Jenny brings up a great point that this also can be, too, can be interpreted in a way that could be too restrictive even and be misused in, in, in terms of uh, downplaying uh, the role of women in ways, or even like this talk about modesty, um, in ways that also tighten down and misinterpret the passage as well. Yeah. What else? Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, so th- th- this could be, uh, a, it could be misused in that we would major on externals to the, uh, and then disregard the internals, even, which is, you know, Paul's point isn't just about braided hair and gold or something, that there's something more here. But if we just took it surface, uh, surface level and just interpret it in that very surface uh, level kind of way, then we might come up with that and misuse it. Yeah, Max. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, right. Obviously, what we're talking about here is recognizing the time and place in which we live, not saying that those discomforts uh, trump the Word of God, but just trying to be honest with how difficult it is to come to this passage while acknowledging the time and place we live in. And you're right that Paul and God care about both internal and external things. That's why he says it. Yeah, let me, let me do, let's do Ryan and then Doug, and we're going to... Yeah. Yeah. 
Yes. Yeah, that's great. Yes. Yeah. Great. Doug, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I think that's right. Doug's saying we need to appreciate not just immediate context of this letter, but the context of the scriptures as a whole and how they might <coughs> speak to this. And that's very important. This is not the only passage, obviously, that we have um, that speaks of what God intends for order within his church and what that might mean in terms of teaching, authority, etc. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to. Thanks for the willingness to talk some more about that, but I want to move on for a bit here. Okay, I don't want to overqualify everything, but I think preliminary comments are in order here. Um, first, I want to say, first thing I want to say is this, that we, we need humility and charity when we come to a passage like this. Um, if you remember, one of the huge issues that Paul is dealing with here is that this false teaching is in some ways majoring on the minors, they're looking to the Old Testament law, and it's gotten very speculative, and the issue is that they've lost sight of the gospel. Here's the irony. We could do that with this passage as well. Um, we could lose sight of the gospel. There's the temptation to think this, that those who differ from us on this passage and on this particular issue have utterly disregarded Scripture in favor of what they want to believe. And no doubt that has been the case, where some people have just said, I don't really like what Paul says here, and so I don't believe it applies anymore. That's happened, but there are some people who differ on the conclusion as to the role of women within the church that have a genuine commitment to the Word of God and are really wrestling with this passage in order to understand it rightly. And so we need to have humility and charity and not immediately assume that those that differ with us have just mailed it in in terms of taking the Bible seriously, because it's just not true. Um, and I think that's important to say. There are people that are radically committed to understanding and studying God's Word, and people that love and follow Jesus who differ on this passage. So, uh, we need to keep in mind that the, this question of women in ministry is a secondary question. Um, in other words, this is not a gospel question. This is not a question that, that determines whether you are orthodox or not. Um, this is not something, this is not a question of whether you believe in the Trinity. It's not a question that, that says, that, that is on par with whether Jesus was fully God and fully man or not. Okay? So we need to say that from the start. I'm not saying it's not an important question. It is a very important question. But we need to keep it in perspective. Um, secondly, Men and women equally bear the image of God and are equally valuable in the kingdom of God. This needs to be trumpeted. Um, so, being made in the image of God, Genesis 1, 27, from the very beginning, this is what God says. God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. Huge implications here that men and women equally bear the image of God. They have the same glory, dignity, worth, and value. This is not, to use a fancy term, an ontological claim that Paul's making in this passage. Okay? He's not talking about a person's worth inherent to who they are. We are talking in the realm of role um, and particular tasks to which somebody's been called and way in which one would be serving. Okay? So it's not a question of that. Um, and then Galatians 3. This is what Paul says in a different place about 
what is most fundamental about our identity? He says this, For as many of you were, as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Okay? Here's what he's saying. Your identity is most fundamentally defined by being in Christ. These other ways in which society would see a distinction, uh, slave and free, uh, Jew or Greek, male and female, are trumped by this identity that we have in Jesus because we are all recipients of the same grace and are united to him. Um, There's a sense in which that transcends all other ways in which you would identify yourself. Okay? Now, obviously, these, these three things are different. We won't get into all this, but Someone remains ethnically Jew or Greek, and yet they're Christian. Somebody might remain in the way in which, depending on how God has called them, a slave or a free person. Obviously, by biology, a person is either male or female, as the, and yet they still come to Christ. So it doesn't eliminate these distinctions, but it says this is not fundamental. What's most important, what's most fundamental to who you are is that you are united to Jesus, and then finally, 1 Corinthians 12, uh, there, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord, there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Every Christian has been gifted by the Spirit and is called to use that gift for the upbuilding of the church. These gifts differ, Okay. Um, you can jot down Ephesians 4, uh, you can read on in 1 Corinthians 12 to see some of what that diversity might look like. Um, but what, what's great about what Paul says in Ephesians 4 is that it, it's by every part working together that we'll be built up in love and that this, um, the mission of God will go forth and the church will be built. All that to say is that though there is a difference in role, every part is critical, absolutely critical. There's not a hierarchy of gifts in some way, okay? So, um, yeah, there's that. Um, uh, men and women made equally in the image of God, with a, each with an equally valuable role to play in the kingdom. Uh, thirdly, uh, the danger of abused authority. Okay? Um, this could be some of what Jenny was getting at. Uh, th- this doesn't just apply in this issue, but there's a real danger to, um, to take passages that speak of submission, for example, uh, and to misuse them. Uh, I know nobody's thinking that's the way we're going to go this morning, but it, it needs to be said that this passage, as well as some of those that speak of the relationship between a husband and a wife, have been misused by the church in the past. They are wrong to do that, okay? The Bible never allows for this abuse of authority or for some way in which a person would domineer over another, okay? That, that is utterly contrary to the way of the kingdom. It's utterly contrary to who Jesus was and is as king. Think of Mark 10. Um, the Gentiles lorded over one another, but it shall not be so among you. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is life in the kingdom. Gifts are used for service. Authority is only given in terms of service, to be used in, the, in a service capacity. Okay, Not to domineer, not to selfishly get your own way, or something like that. Um, okay, finally... Uh, the danger of picking and choosing, um, I mean the danger of picking and choosing passages from the scripture that we 
are really comfortable with and then some that we aren't comfortable with. This is one of those good passages to come along, uh, to, that comes along. It's a good reason why it's great to teach through whole books of the Bible because this is not something that we would just go to and say, what do I really want to teach and talk about? How about First Timothy 2, right? Um, this is good for us because it reminds us that the whole counsel of God is important for us as the people of God. And there are some parts of the Bible that align more with our personal preferences, with our cultural moment, uh, and there are some that don't. Uh, but we're called to uh, recognize that the whole counsel of God is, is, in fact, God's Word, and it's for us as the people of God. Okay? Uh, any questions about some of those preliminary comments at all? Yeah. Correct. And he's addressing the women in Ephesus. It's not a universal uh, edict or instruction here. Because there were some women there in Ephesus that were ill-prepared, that was teaching false doctrine, and was instructing men. Would you agree with that? Um, I agree with that to a degree. Um, there are certainly, and this is actually perfect, because uh, this is going to go right into context here. Um, there is the question of context. Um, does this apply, is this meant just to apply to the women at Ephesus because there are specific issues happening there, but it's not something that would be ap- applicable to the rest of the church, for example? I'd say um, yes to the first, but the second doesn't follow. For this reason, it's, it's verse 13 that makes the difference in a huge way. It's that Paul is applying what is a timeless principle that is rooted in the creation, in the created order. Um, there are specific issues, though there's a lot of debate in the commentaries as to whether the women were actually false teaching or not, because it's actually not said in that passage. Um, there is, it's likely, and we'll see this in a moment here, that in 2 Timothy women were the particular object of the deception that was taking place by these false teachers because they were in these house churches and that was happening. Um, but it's not, it, it's not saying that all women were falling prey to this because some, some have said this, this is just an issue of women not being educated enough. Therefore, if they learn, they're able to teach. Paul says, no, that's not the issue. Verse 13 is the issue in that Adam was created first and so he, he grounds it what he, he applies this universal created issue in a particular instance. So that, that's, how I, I mean, that, that's how I respond to that. Um, so some about the context here. Um, there's a lot of talk in, about, uh, about what Ephesus was like at the time. It was, there was this temple of Artemis, or Diana, that was this Greek, uh, this Greek goddess, and this thing was huge, um, the, the actual temple to this woman, um, this, this, yeah, here's a quote for you, the, the, Ar- the Artemisium, which I think is like gymnasium, but Artemisium, okay, the Artemisium was the largest building in the Greek world, about four times larger than the Athenian Parthenon, okay, so massive, uh, massive cult in Ephesus that's taking place, there are magical elements and things, and so women do play a pretty prominent role as priestesses in this cult. So there are some particular issues that are happening culturally there 
There's been a lot of study on it, though, that says it's not uh, that there were men that participated there, and it wasn't as though Ephesus was utterly unique in the role of women um, in either direction, in either limiting or just opening it up completely. But here's what is said in, um, uh, in Acts. That's Acts 19. Oh, that's not right. Acts 29 is not. Uh, do I have that wrong on your sheet, too? There's no such thing as Acts 29. <coughs> it's not a chapter in the Bible. Um, yeah. For a man, to, a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together in the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods, and so on. So lots of the economy is wrapped up in this too. We need to know that. Um, here's a reason that, that uh, it, it, something that's happening within the church as to why Paul would mention women, and um, we just talked a bit about this. Uh, this is from 2 Timothy 3. Having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people, speaking of the false teachers. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. We can end there. That's, uh, so that, that's a possible contextual issue as to why Paul is writing this. It seems that there were some issues where the women were being particularly targeted and were susceptible to what was happening um, and so we go from there. So he, he is addressing this specific contextual issue, but he appeals to this principle rooted in the created order that applies universally. Okay? Immediate context. Verses 1 through 7 is a public gathering of the church. This would essentially be a worship service. Okay? They're praying publicly, and the instructions to prayer point to that. Um, so they've moved from this prayer in these gatherings to specific comments about the ones who are praying. The context of this letter so far has been this false teaching that is publicly wreaking havoc in the church. So there's a public dimension to what's being spoken of here. And then verse 8 speaks of all places as, as to the location where these men are to lift holy hands. That's probably a reference to house churches. It might be something other than that, but a lot of commentators think it's probably a reference to house churches. Here's a quote from Schreiner. By the way, this article is um, very helpful if you want to pursue these issues more. It interacts with a lot of the scholarship on both sides of the issue. <clears throat> Thus, the directives here relate to a public church meeting when, when believers are gathered together. The words in every place refer to all churches everywhere, not just those in Ephesus. In any case, a public worship context is likely in view, whether the reference is to house churches in Ephesus or to all churches everywhere. Okay, so verse 8, the call to men. I desire that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. What does this mean? It's this call to men to pray in, in, in this manner. Uh, when they do pray, to pray one with whole, by lifting holy hands and two without anger or quarreling. Um, he's not saying that men alone should pray. That's not, he, this is a place where it could be narrowed. There's a clear uh, call in 1 Corinthians 11 uh, for instructions for when women pray in worship. Uh, so he's saying, but when men pray, they need to do so with lifting, by lifting holy hands. What that likely means is some sort of, um, that this would be uh, the image of cleanliness language, where the hands would be clean, um, and then it would be uh, sort of projected out to the whole of their lives, that the character of these men as they pray matters, and they're specifically to avoid this anger or quarreling that could ultimately hinder their prayers. 
Um, it's likely that the false teachers were those, again, as we uh, read in other parts of this letter, were those who were characterized by this anger or quarreling. Paul's saying, don't do that. Don't, uh, don't, don't fall into these disputes and these things that you're so prone to, okay? Come ready to pray uh, as one who has received the grace of the Lord Jesus and is seeking to live in keeping with that grace that's been shown to you. Um, so there's this uh, general application to say that, that prayer is hindered by anger and quarreling. You think of Matthew 5 where Jesus speaks of uh, being reconciled to your brother before you bring your gift to the altar. Um, Peter, in 1 Peter 3, talks about husbands um, needing to be in right relationship with their wives in order that their prayers might not be hindered. There's some connection between our life uh, this, this issue of anger, quarreling, etc., that's tied to our prayers. Um, so Paul is saying, pray with holy hands rather than quarreling. Okay, 9 to 15, the call to women, the bulk of this passage. <clears throat> few points. Uh, four, actually. So first, women should adorn good works rather than extravagant Attire. This is in verses 9 and 10 here. They should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper or fitting for women who profess godliness with good works. Now, when we hear modesty, um, what sort of issues arise? What do we think of? Yes, it's a, it's a sexual matter, Right? You're thinking of like, well, is a two-piece okay or is a one-piece okay? Or like what, those kinds of questions in terms of modesty. Um, what, what, it, it's an issue of being seductive or something like that. That is definitely part of what's happening here in Ephesus. Um, and the issue you'll see from these quotes is that some of the women that dressed in this particular way, braided hair, uh, extravagant gold, all this stuff, were those who were prostitutes. So, Paul's saying, that's not appropriate for that reason, okay? They are dressing like prostitutes. It's not, not a good thing. Uh, however, there's another issue that's at work here, and it's that uh, th- there's also an economic issue in terms of modesty, okay? Notice at the end of verse 9, he says, costly attire, gold, pearls, and costly attire. These would have been things that only the haves would have been able to do. So uh, these would be women looking to parade their wealth in very obvious ways, in extravagant sort of ways, and that's, that's a problem. Um, there, there were wealthy women in the church, but there were also women who were not wealthy, and Paul's saying you need to be sensitive to that. So here, here's an here's important qualification. Um, there is nothing inherently wrong with braided hair and gold or pearls or even costly attire, Okay? This is where there is a real cultural issue at work here, where had we been in the church at Ephesus, we would have known exactly what Paul's talking about right here. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah, the braided hair, yeah. Uh, Gold, costly, okay, I know what you're talking about. We know what we shouldn't do, okay? Much harder to translate into our cultural context. I'm not going to try and parse out right now what potentially seductive attire or costly attire might mean or look like. That's a discussion you can have amongst yourselves after. But the principle stands here, okay? And if we, if we couch this in terms of what Paul has said in verses se- or 1 through 7, that he's talking about the mission of God going forth to all peoples, praying for all peoples, that the gospel would go forth, 
This issue of how we think about our dress within the church could have a bearing on the gospel going forth. And that is applicable to us, okay? Like I said, I do think that there's inevitable cultural things that, that come, into the, come into play here. What things would look like in the 17th century in terms of modesty is different than it is today. These, these aren't easily discernible, timeless truths or something. But the, what shows here is there's this cultural sensitivity to the particular place in which um, they're living and ministering. I won't read those quotes. They say pretty much what we just did. So it's the result of the clothing that's the problem. Paul says, instead, let good works adorn you. Clothe yourselves in these good works. Let that be your identity. Allow your life to be shaped by the story of the gospel in such a way that that is where your beauty is found. Um, this, this aroma of life that comes forth from a person who's been transformed by the gracious work of Jesus. The gospel will bring about an unparalleled beauty within you. It's not downplaying physical beauty. God created physical beauty. Um, men and women are, are intended to be, we're to appreciate the createdness, our being embodied, to be attracted to one another. Um, appreciating real beauty, that's a good, good thing. Paul's saying, um, don't misuse those good gifts uh, to your own selfish ends that would draw attention to yourself and ultimately hinder the mission of God. Okay, <clears throat> let's keep moving. Um, ten minutes. Verses 11 through 12. Two things being said, okay? Well, more than that, but I'm going to break it into two. Uh, there's a positive command given in verse 11 saying, let a woman, or let a woman, let a woman learn, okay? And then a negative prohibition that's prohibiting two things here. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. I'm going to deal with those in opposite order, deal with verse 12 first. Uh, these are two separate infinitive verbs in this sentence, okay? To teach and to exercise authority. So there are two separate things being prohibited right here. Here's the conclusion uh, that I'm going to draw for us as to what this precludes, okay? It precludes women holding office. These are the kind of the, I'll say these are issues that uh, are relatively clearly precluded. There are other questions that could arise that, we are, that, that are harder to discern. But it precludes women from holding the office of pastor or elder because these are authoritative offices, these are offices in which authority is exercised. And secondly, it precludes women from preaching in gathered worship. Context is important, okay? That's why I made the point at the beginning to say that this is a public gathering. And the sort of teaching that's in mind here is this conveying of this deposit of the gospel, okay? Um, it is this authoritative uh, teaching that, that is what Paul wants to preserve, okay? He's going to say why this is the case by grounding it in the created order, okay? What he's not saying is that women are incapable of teaching or something like that. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that, that this is an issue that is grounded in um, roles that go back to the very created order. Long quote from Clowney there that's really helpful, um, I'm not going to read it all, but pick up halfway through. Um, for that reason, he does not permit women to teach in the church. While teaching and exercising authority are separately forbidden in 1 Timothy 2.12, 1 
Paul's mention of the exercise of authority serves to explain why teaching is not permitted. While the word man may be the object of both teach and exercise authority, it probably is, it's authoritative teaching that's forbidden. This is evident from the context of 1 Timothy 2, where Paul's giving instruction on prayer and appearance in public worship. Paul does not bar a woman from communicating biblical truth to her husband when she asks him at home about the examination of a prophet in the assembly. Paul knew the teaching capabilities of Lois, Eunice, and Priscilla. I think Priscilla and um, Aquila in uh, Acts 19, uh, 18 or 19. Um, I've got it later on, I think. Um, where there is this issue where, where Aquila and Priscilla, as a couple, pull this guy aside and instruct them, instruct him um, together, jointly. Okay? The woman is teaching, Priscilla is teaching and playing a prominent role in that. It's just not in this, uh, in this context of gathered worship. It's authoritative teaching in the public assembly of the church that involves the ruling function. And according to 1 Timothy 3, Keith will talk about this next week, this teaching is the primary responsibility of the elder or overseer. Okay, <clears throat> a few things this does not mean. It does not mean that all women are su- to submit to all men. Okay? does not mean that. Um, maybe that doesn't, nobody thinks that does come from this. Uh, it just doesn't mean that. <laughs> the instruction here is for women to submit to the teaching of the men having authority in the church. Important distinction, okay? It does not mean that women are not to teach or to exercise authority outside the church, okay? Um, this doesn't have anything to say about women holding positions of authority in government or in the corporate world, Okay? Uh, Nor does it say anything about women teaching men in educational institutions, for example. Okay? This is where we need to be careful to say what the text says and not go beyond what it says either and and wrongly narrow it. Okay? And of course, uh, feel free to email me about this to grab me and say, well, let's talk about some of this stuff afterwards. Okay? But um, but I think these are important things that are not being said here. Quickly, some other instances of women teaching. Um, there's some that Clowney's mentioned there. Paul gives specific commands for women to teach in Titus 2, women and children in particular. Um, in 2 Timothy, Paul mentions, yeah, he mentions uh, Timothy's grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. And then, as I said, Priscilla and her husband Aquila instructed a man together in Acts 19. Um, yeah, another quick point. Uh, some of this relates to Ryan's point. Um, the Bible has no problem also pushing back in the other direction against uh, a, the first century world that had a very narrow view of women. Huge example of that is that the ones to whom Jesus first showed himself as resurrected, the ones to whom the resurrected Lord first appeared, were women. Um, that's a huge deal. Women were the ones who first went and told the disciples who didn't get it, who were you know, shut in this dark room and mourning over the loss of Jesus. Um, that, that, was, that was a big deal in the first century world. Women, the, the testimony of women in that culture was not admissible into court. Um, so th- th- this is a huge deal. Uh, so Paul's got no problem, the Bible's got no problem pushing back in the other direction as well. So that's, I just want to point that out, but it, kinda, it can cut both ways. It was offensive then as well. And now the positive command. We want to not miss this point. Um, the command is to learn here. So they're to do so quietly, which means something along the lines of this quiet demeanor and spirit that's peaceable instead of argumentative. He doesn't intend utter silence. 
He's calling women to give themselves to learning and studying the gospel, this true doctrine, okay? That was a huge deal. Um, there are cases in which some say that there was Jewish literature at the time that prohibited women from teaching, from learning in this way. Paul's saying, learn. Learn. Women need to learn in this context, not be outside these educational uh, settings, but to be uh, included and to learn these things. Um, learning the true gospel. Okay, then the reason for this prohibition, 13 and 14, men or women, men in the created order. Uh, Paul says, verse 13, this is where he's grounding his argument. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Okay? Um, what this means is that the prohibition that he gives in verse 12 is not something that is the result of the fall. Okay? It's something that is a result of the created order. He says in verse 13, Adam was formed first, then Eve. There's this, uh, there's this first place, first among equals priority given to the man in this place. And that's how he grounds this question of teaching and authority. He goes on then in verse 14 to show what goes wrong when this order is subverted, which is what happens in the garden. He's not saying that Eve's, it's Eve's fault uh, exclusively, for the fall. He's stating the facts of what happened in Genesis 3 and that the woman was deceived. Um, but here's the deal, though. He's not saying Adam's guilt-free. If you remember Romans 5, um, Adam functions as the representative of all humanity there. Paul pins it squarely on Adam. And that's actually, it fits well with this context and what's happening here. It's because Paul abdicated his responsibility, and you don't hear from him in, in, uh, in Genesis 3. Um, so he bears responsibility for what happened. Eve was the one who was deceived. Adam takes a step back. That's the problem. Paul's saying, it's grounded in creation. Here's, what's hap- here's an example of what happens when things go wrong. Okay? Um, yeah, I'm going to move on. Um, verse 15. <laughs> in one minute. Women's role in salvation, <clears throat> yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. What does that mean? A couple options. Here are, the, here are the issues. We have to understand first, what does this phrase, will be saved, what does that word mean? Um, two possibilities. One is salvation in the spiritual sense. The other would be salvation in the physical sense of something like preservation. The other option, or the other issue, is interpretive options for through childbearing. This is from uh, a commentator named uh, George Knight, by the way. What does it mean to be this, this phrase through childbearing? That could mean the birth of Messiah or childbearing in general. Okay, let me just say what it does not mean. It does not mean that individual women are saved by virtue of giving birth to children. There is ridiculous debate on what this passage means, and frankly, I don't really know what it means. I'm not confident of my understanding of this verse after spending quite a bit of time studying it too. But I'll tell you what nobody says. Um, It's that uh, individual women are saved by virtue of giving birth to children. Why not? Well, that's antithetical to the gospel that is received uh, by faith alone through grace alone. Okay? It's not by some work that you would do. The other obvious thing is that not all women are going to give birth to children. Not all women are going to be mothers. That would make no sense to interpret in this way. Okay, so what does it mean? Maybe, probably. Um, A couple options. One is this, which probably isn't right, honestly, but it is kind of, it's neater. 
It refers to the spiritual salvation that comes through the birth of the Messiah. Okay? That would be nice if this is what this meant. Um, that what's being said here is it moves into Genesis 3.15 and that it's being spoken of the seed of the woman that's going to crush the head of the serpent. And that, therefore, is the way in which women and humanity as a whole will be saved through childbirth. That is, uh, by Mary giving birth to Jesus, the Messiah. That would be very neat and tidy. Probably not right. Here's the other one that probably is, I think. In speaking against these ascetic tendencies, remember, later on he's saying, you are wrongly disparaging this good food and marriage. Um, So he's speaking against those ascetic tendencies of the false teachers. It, It refers then to salvation being lived out in the ordinariness of marriage and childbearing, okay, and the maintaining of roles specific to women. So he's not saying that you would earn your salvation in this way. He's rather saying that this, the, the way this verse speaks of, that if you continue in faith and love and holiness, that is the outworking of a life, of a, uh, of a heart that is united to Jesus and always inevitably bears fruit. This is like this call to keep yourself in the love of God, the way that um, the Bible speaks to walk in this path, okay, live in this grace that is yours. It's in that sort of sense that he's saying that. If they continue in faith and love and holiness, it's not as though these are unspiritual activities, these ordinary activities of life. Live them out in the context of marriage and childbirth. These are not unspiritual things, okay? As you can see, that's probably not totally satisfying to you either. It's not for me. But those, I think, are the best options we have right now on verse 15. This is a good kind of being humble before the Word of God, too, and kind of saying, I don't really know exactly what's being said. Um, that's all the time we have today. I really do, I, I seriously, I, am, uh, I really am happy to discuss this. I, um, there are, like I said, it's, it's not like people that differ from the interpretation I set forward are obnoxiously wrong and like pulling things that are just crazy. Um, and I'm so I'm, I'm be happy to interact with some of that stuff if you'd like to, um, in person or by email or whatever. Let me pray for us. Father, we are grateful uh, that you've called us to yourself and that you sent Jesus into the world to rescue us, and that uh, that we can come to your word and know that it is profitable for us, and still recognize that there are things that we don't understand about your word and things that are difficult to understand about your word, and we or with Peter recognizing that specific things that Paul has said are very difficult. This is one of them. Uh, give us greater understanding. Help us to cling to, uh, to you, the God of the Bible, uh, the one who speaks authoritatively in and through this word, by this word, um, and, and to, to follow your son Jesus in all the ways you call us to. Uh, be with us, uh, for those of us entering into worship in this hour, be with those who have already worshipped and are going from this place. And we pray this. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, amen.